Second Timothy. It's uh, way back towards the back. Almost one of the last books of your Bible. It's in the pastoral letters. One of the, the pastoral letters. This is a very significant letter that Paul writes. Very, very significant. Anyone know why? Paul is our letter writer, isn't he? He's written a lot of letters. He actually wrote almost the majority of our New Testament. Actually, when you count the number of words on, on paper, Luke writes the most, but Paul is a close second. But why is it the most significant letter of Paul? Yeah. This is just a guess. Yeah. That it was one of the last, if not the last, you got letter it. that he wrote before he himself was put together. Exactly. This is what most biblical scholars believe to be the final letter of Paul. It's the final letter we know for a fact Paul wrote. Now, some people will attribute Paul to writing the book of Hebrews, and that's, that's up for dispute. If he wrote the book of Hebrews, that's his last letter. But if, if he didn't, this is his last letter that he ever wrote to anybody. It's very significant because, you know, I'm, I love geeking out about the Apostle Paul. Very fascinating figure, a, a hero in the faith of mine for sure. And um, this is his last kind of last opportunity to send something out. Now, now we have to talk about dates now and when he wrote this letter. This comes one year after writing 1 Timothy. One year after writing 1 Timothy. And he's writing this either in the year 64, 65, or 66 AD. Okay, very significant years on the calendar. And he's writing to a young man. He is, a, he is discipling. He calls him his dear son in the faith. And his name is Timothy, right? Timothy. It's... Um, and where does Timothy live? In which city is he ministering? The city of Ephesus. Ephesus. Remember where they had the, the, the temple to the goddess Diana? And they had the, uh, the big library with like 20,000 volumes in it. It was right there on the river in a port town. Very economically important city. Very prosperous city. And Timothy is trying to lead a congregation there. And in 1 Timothy, we hear a lot of language from Paul talking to Timothy, encouraging him, encouraging him, saying, don't let anyone look down on you for your youth. You know, use the gift you've been given. Watch out for false teachers. And he's encouraging him and giving him all this advice. And we're going to hear the tone of 2 Timothy change just a little bit. And I want to see if you guys catch it. But we find ourselves in the year 64, let's say, maybe 66 in between there somewhere. What happened in the year 64, though? It's very important in Roman history. Anybody know? Who was the emperor? Start with that. Nero. Was he friendly towards the Christian faith? No. Absolutely not. No. Very demented, just psychopath of an emperor. Very paranoid, polytheistic, very godless man. What happened in 64, though? Anybody know the Roman history? Yeah. Are you referring to the fire? The fire of 64, exactly. The fire of 64 was very pivotal, and especially if you know church history or the history of Christianity, the fire of 64 is where things really turned for the Christian faith in Rome. The fire of 64 burns 71% of the city of Rome, just raised the city just about. And who was the scapegoat for the fire? Christians were. Nero immediately blamed the Christians. And then, and then Nero immediately built this sprawling palatial complex on the ruins of what used to be the rough part of Rome where it burned to the ground. He built this massive palace and he made that his home. So it, it, it kind of worked in his favor. And he had a scapegoat and he had a good reason to turn the majority of the Roman population against this new blossoming movement called the Christian faith. And that started the great persecution, the Roman persecution against the Christian faith. 
And we see things really take a turn for the worse in terms of persecution of people like Paul and people like Timothy. 64 is a very, very important year, a very bad year for the Christian faith. But God knows all, right? It's all in his hands and all in his control. But it's important we understand that Paul is writing this letter while sitting in this damp, dark, and there's no daylight cave of a jail cell. Anybody know the name of it? No? Good guess. It's the Maritima Prison. It is, a, it is a former pagan place of worship, actually, where some people even theorize that human sacrifice once took place in this cave. But the Romans repurposed it for a jail cell, as a jail cell for political prisoners. And Paul is rotting away in this prison cell. He knows that he's probably going to face imminent death because Nero is the emperor and he has beseeched the emperor. He has requested to go before the emperor, his, his case. And in the meantime, after doing that, Rome burns, Nero blames the Christians, and Paul's like, oh great, I have to go before this psychopath of an emperor. What do you think is going to happen? Swink. Yeah. And it, of course, Paul's life will end with beheading. But in the meantime, he's writing as many letters as he can while he's in this jail cell. Do you think Paul is ever feeling moments of discouragement or sadness or isolation? Absolutely. He's a human. He's a human. Yeah. But Paul is writing this letter to Timothy from this place here and just rotting away in this this jail cell, knowing all the stuff that's going on around him in Rome. It's important that we frame it with that. But Paul is going to die. After being released from this, he's going to be beheaded. And that's how he ends his life. Now picture that. This man, Paul, a great hero of the faith, right? How many millions of people have been named Paul now throughout the course of history? How many people's lives have been changed because of the work of Paul and how many letters he wrote out and how many assemblies and people he discipled and, and brought up from the ground and, 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 and apostled, right? I mean, I would say Western civilization has been shaped by this man who will not see the fruits of all his labor. So let's go to first Timothy. I'm sorry. Second Timothy chapter one. And let's read this chapter. I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to comment in between. I'm going to save all my comments for the end. We're just going to read it here. I'll do my best to save the comments for the end. But Paul is writing this letter from this cell to his beloved son of the faith, Timothy. And let's see if the tone changes a little bit. He says from Shaul, from Paul. An emissary of the Messiah, Yeshua, by God's will, which holds forth a promise of life through being united with Messiah, Yeshua, to Timothy, my dear son. Now, he's not a biological son. He's a son in the faith, right? He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and the Messiah, Yeshua, our Lord. I give thanks to God, whom, like my forebearers, I worship with a clean conscience, As I regularly remember you in my prayers night and day, I am reminded of your tears and I long to see you so that I might be filled with joy. I recall your sincere trust, the same trust that your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice had first. And I am convinced that you too now have this trust. For this reason, I am reminding you to fan the flame of God's gift, which you received through the smicha, the, the laying on of hands from me. For God gave us not a spirit that produces timidity or fear, but of power, of love and self-discipline. So don't be ashamed of bearing testimony to our Lord or to me, his prisoner. Notice he's not saying 
Nero's prisoner. He's saying Yeshua's prisoner. He's not giving Nero any kind of any kind of praise or due credit. On the contrary, accept your share in suffering disgrace for the sake of the good news. And God will give you the strength for it. Since he delivered us and called us to live a life of happiness as his people. What? Holy calling. Oh, I thought it was holiness. Oh, I thought it was happy. Oh, it's holiness. Okay. A life of holiness as his people. It was not because of our deeds, that's important, but because of his own purpose and the grace which he gave to us who are united with Messiah Yeshua. He did this before the beginning of time, but made it public only now through the appearing of our deliverer, the Messiah Yeshua, who abolished death and through the good news revealed life and immortality. It was for this good news that I was appointed a proclaimer, an emissary, and a teacher to the Gentiles. And this is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, because I know him in whom I have put my trust. And I am persuaded that he can keep safe until that day what he has entrusted to me. So follow the pattern of sound teachings you have heard from me with trust And the love which is yours in the Messiah Yeshua, keep safe the great treasure that has been entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has turned away from me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he was often a comfort to me and not ashamed of my being in prison. On the contrary... When he came to Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. And may the Lord grant it to him to find mercy from Adonai on that day. And you know very well how much he helped me in Ephesus. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 2. So then you, Timothy, my son, be empowered by the grace that comes from the Messiah, Yeshua. You hear a little bit of a tone tone change towards the end of chapter 1, don't you? Where Paul is going from kind of this mountaintop experience, seeing Timothy operating as gifting and the calling of Ephesus, to now it's kind of like, keep going in that, Timothy. Keep going, keep going, keep going. I know, it sounds like Timothy himself is facing hardships, doesn't it? That Timothy himself needs encouragement. He's having to tell Timothy, press on, press on, press on. Don't let people look down on you. Don't, don't let isolation get in your head. And then even Paul admits, and he says, you know, everyone in the province of Asia has turned away from me. He's saying, I know your pain as well, Timothy. I know what you're going through. His tone has kind of changed a little bit. And this man, we're going to see as we close the book of 2 Timothy here in a few weeks. Paul is never in his life is going to see the real fruits of his labor. He's never going to see lives changed like he could see today if he were to look out and see Gentiles coming to faith in God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's never going to see the millions of people who are named after him. Towns, roads, you know, uh, churches, you know, all kinds of things that will, that will uh, venerate this great man of God. He will never see that. He will die alone, isolated, and feeling by, betrayed by people who are closest to him. But does he give up the faith? Absolutely not. You know, this painting here, does anybody know the name of this painting? Starry Night. Anybody know who, who painted this? Vincent Van Gogh. You guys, uh, 
know your your history. There he is. Vincent Van Gogh. Vincent Van Gogh. He's a great example of someone who was an amazing artist and painter. Do you know how many paintings sold in his lifetime? One. One painting sold in his lifetime, and it wasn't for very much. How much are his paintings selling for now? <laughs> Tens of millions of dollars. I mean, they're, they're in museums protected by laser beams and cameras, right? And Starry Night included. But this man never saw the fruits of his labor. Can you imagine, just on a side note, being the guy who had to paint Vincent Van Gogh? <laughs> Wasn't this a self-portrait? I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was. Okay, maybe it was. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the only person that can paint Vincent Van Gogh is himself, right? Who's this guy? My clicker is being slow to click here. Thank you. Here, there he is. Nikolai Tesla. Nikolai Tesla. Yeah, he lived in the early 1900s. He didn't die till 1943. Another person who worked all his life, invented all his life, came up with amazing ideas, but never really saw them come into fruition in his lifetime. And in fact, even in his lifetime, were stolen by other businessmen. A lot of his ideas, like the fluorescent or the incandescent light bulb, was kind of taken and stolen by uh, Edison, but came up with alternating current, which a lot of electronics run on now. Yeah, amazing, amazing inventions that had had uh, other people not stolen or squashed the ideas of would have radically changed, but he did not see them come into his, you know, come into fruition until after he died. He didn't see them at all. So another example of someone like Paul had to die and didn't see it. Another person. Anybody know this guy? You probably don't. I learned about him this morning, actually. His name is, this is a funny name, Ignaz Simmelweis. Ignaz, Ignaz Simmelweis. Can you imagine being named Ignaz? Ignaz. Ignaz, come here. Yeah, Iggy. Yeah. Ignaz Simmelweis. He was a Hungarian doctor, surgeon, obstetricianist, like amazing, amazing, intelligent uh Came up with a lot of breakthrough, uh, life-changing, life-altering uh, medical breakthroughs that he did not see until after he died. This man was um, was a surgeon, uh, but he also one of the ways that they were learning how to perform sur- surgery on people was that they would go and they would perform surgery and learn about human organs using cadavers. Well, they had a big problem in in Europe at the time where. Uh, they would they would be doing surgery, so to speak, exploratory surgery or autopsies on cadavers, and then they would go in and they would deliver a baby, and the baby would catch a fever or some kind of infection and then die. And they were like, "What is going on with this?" Well, Mr. Simmelweis here thought maybe there's a correlation between the two, and this was in the 1800s. People didn't really put two and two together yet about these things called bacteria or germs, right? And Ignaz noticed one time his friend was operating on a cadaver that died of a disease and then accidentally poked himself with the scalpel. He caught the same disease and died. And Ignaz put it together. There's something that we cannot see that we're getting from these cadavers that is then being transported, being being moved and infecting the people that we're trying to heal. And so Ignaz came up with a solution. He thought maybe if we can wash these invisible particles, he called them 
off of our, our instruments and off of our hands and then go deliver the baby or work on and, and, and perform surgery on a patient, maybe that will help. So he did this controlled study where he had um, some of his, uh, his midwives would wash their hands with this lime uh, and chlor- chlor- chloride solution. And they had a 90% drop in infantality every time they did that. So he prescribed all his, all his surgeons working in his ward and all the, all, the, all the midwives working in his ward had to, before they started on a new patient, had to wash their hands with this stuff. And he was so ridiculed by the, by the status quo, you could say, by, by other doctors and surgeons. He was so ridiculed, they would pick him apart and slander his studies. He actually wrote, wrote studies on his findings. And he couldn't see, there was no proof of the bacteria. They didn't have the ability to see these microbes that were causing these infections. But he was certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was what causing the ailments and all the death. And they just ripped him apart over it. They tore him down so and ruined his career so quickly that he actually went insane. And he was committed to an insane asylum in, in Europe. When he was committed to the, and even his family committed him to an insane asylum, he realized what was going on. He tried to fight his way out and he was severely beaten by the guards of the insane asylum. He was put in a straitjacket and then had to undergo daily uh, uh, baths in, um, in ice cold water. They thought that that maybe uh, solved your, uh, your, your insanity. And, um, and he was just locked in a cell with a straitjacket. Well, through the beatings, he, he, he had like internal be- bleeding um, or, or some kind of injury that got infected and he died. But he died with no one realizing that he was actually correct. And, you know, of course, much later, people were like, wait a second. What if we start washing our hands before we perform surgeries on people, right? But poor Ignaz died and was not, he was never vindicated in that belief. And so sometimes, like, people like Paul and people like Timothy... They work really hard. People like, like Jim and Keitha work really hard in the ministry, doing things and, and running the race that's been set before them. But at times feel a deep isolation, a deep discouragement. And, and they don't really see the fruits of their labor sometimes this side of the kingdom. And it can be very, very discouraging and disappointing. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, he says, for the time is coming... When people will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober minded, endure suffering and do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure has come, Paul says. I'm about to die. It seems pretty evident. He says, however, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race and I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is saying, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty abandoned right now. I'm feeling pretty isolated, pretty betrayed by people I felt were pretty close to me. And my death is imminent, but I know that stored up for me is a crown. I have finished my fight. I have run my race like a good athlete. I made it across the finish line. And in that, in that alone, am I proud? 
And here is a man who, if anybody ever deserves this parade, this, this glory, this veneration in his lifetime, it's Paul, right? Man, he should get the best book deal of the century. Zondervan should publish everything and do all this stuff. Nope. Guess what? He's going to live out his last days in a cell, in a cave, rotting away. And sometimes we get in this, this mindset that I deserve glory for going over and fixing somebody's toilet at their house, right? They can't fix it. I deserve glory for helping so-and-so move, right? But man, Paul, it's like, wow, it puts things in context, doesn't it? Paul says, I think I've got the verse up here. Paul, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11, if you don't mind. And this kind of frames things a little bit for you guys. Paul's going to list his credentials here. 2 Corinthians 11. And, and go, go to verse 23. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. He says, um, he says in about midway through the verse, he says, I've worked much harder. He says, I've been imprisoned more often than the people who are opposing him. He says, I've suffered more beatings. I've been near death over and over. Five times I have received 39 lashes from the Jews, my people. Anybody ever been uh, lashed in here like once? Like, like not, not a single lashing from it? No? Five times. What's five times 39? <laughs> he says, three times I was beaten with rods. And then I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent night and day on the open sea. In my travels, I have been exposed to danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the desert, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I have toiled and endured hardship, often not enough sleep. I've been hungry and thirsty, frequently gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And beside these external matters, there is the daily pressure of my anxious concern for all the congregations. Who is weak without my sharing his weakness? Who falls into sin without my burning inside? Wow. Paul is saying, like, despite all of that stuff, my anxiety lies in the spiritual health of these congregations I'm starting. I don't care about all that stuff, but I'll throw it out there to prove that I've had to suffer a lot. But Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, I've run my race now. I finished my fight. Now, Timothy, it's on to you. Now, this man is a Kenyan. His name is Eliud Kipchoge. Have ever heard of him? Probably good. You haven't. <laughs> he is the first human being to run a marathon, 26.2 miles in under two hours. He ran it in one hour, 59 seconds, and I think, uh, sorry, yeah, one hour, 59 minutes, and I think 45 seconds. And I think it was in the city of Berlin, if I'm not mistaken. 26.2 miles. But we find ourselves here, and, and Eliud has this fascinating quote. He says, if you want to run a marathon... Just know the marathon doesn't start until 30 kilometers in. It's like, wow, 30 kilometers in. And the, few, the, the couple marathons I've run, that is a very true statement. The marathon doesn't start until you're about 
15 miles in, 16, 17 miles in. It's all gravy up until that point. And there's actually some people, uh, uh, medical people, psychologists, have looked at marathon runners who regularly run marathons and said that they go through eight stages, which involves a lot of different emotions, and some of them are actually grief. <laughs> like you're grieving something. But stage, stage five and six of running a marathon, of the eight, are what they call the wasteland, which is miles like 15 to 17-ish, or 15 to 19, it depends on the person. The wasteland. <laughs> and then miles like 17 to 20, they called the dark place, oh. the dark place where you, in, you experience the most intense isolation, the most intense mental uh, uh, grief, and you're overwhelmed with just this emotion of, of thinking, why did I set out to do this? Why? Why? And then it's not until you hit a number that starts with the number two. A mileage that starts with a number two that you begin to feel a glimmer of hope. And you think, okay, now I've only got a 10K left. <laughs> I'm in, this, I'm in the, 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 the decimal that is my finish point. And you start to feel that glimmer of hope. It doesn't get easier, but it, it gives you a little tiny glimmer of hope. But that dark place is everything. And they say, I was reading the article this morning, they say the best thing you can do when you're in the dark place is to not get isolated in your own head. Run up to someone and talk to them. Encourage them. Ask them about themselves. And they will hopefully do the same thing about you. They say dedicate every mile to someone you love as you're running it. Every mile. This mile is going to be for so-and-so. Okay, the next mile, okay, this one's going to be for so-and-so. And you make it less about yourself then. And you get outside of the cave of your, of your skull you see, we find Paul at the end of his marathon, so to speak. The beginning of the marathon, it's like this joy, there's this excitement, there's this adrenaline, and it's fueling you for about the first 15 miles. I'm doing this, right? And you've got all these people around you. I mean, really, physically, you're surrounded by people as you're doing the first half of a marathon. The end of the marathon, it's kind of the same. I can begin to hear the music playing up at the finish line. Even I'm just a couple miles away. Yeah, I've got blisters forming my feet. I'm pretty sure my toenails are no longer attached to my feet, right? <laughs> Every part of my body is hurting, but man, I can hear the cheers. I can hear the music. I can almost see the finish line up there. And there's more and more people on the sidelines cheering you on. So the start and the finish are almost the easiest parts of the race. And what is the hardest part? That dark place in the middle where your determination, your commitment is really tested. Really, really tested. I think in 2 Timothy, and we're going to read on throughout this book as we teach through it. Timothy is finding himself in the 20s. He's at mile 24, 25, 26, something like that. He can hear the music. He can see the finish line. And he's saying, man, I've done it. I'm there. It's been tough. I mean, there, I have finished a marathon in Chattanooga and I, a couple miles from the finish line, I could look down off a bridge and I could see the finish line. I started tearing up crying because I was so filled with joy that I'm nearing the end. Paul is like that. Paul is saying, man, I got this. 
I've been through the highs and lows of my faith. I've been through isolation. I've been through all these different hardships and all these different emotions. But the finish line for me, Paul, isn't, yeah, it involves me, my, my head being severed from my shoulders, but it's in view now. But he's writing to a man to whom this book is all about, who is in the middle of the race. He's in the doldrum, so to speak, of the faith. And he's saying, Timothy, your race hasn't just begun and you're not nearing the end of it. As far as we know, you're in the middle. You're in the dark place. Hang in there, dude. It's going to get tough. People are going to beat you up. The people who you trust, the people who you depend on you for spiritual leadership will betray you. Hang in there, man. If I can do it, you can do it. So I want to leave you with a couple questions. My microphone's popping, of course, here. I want to leave you with a couple questions. Where do you find yourself today and what part of your race are you at? What part of your race are you in? For some of you, you just started off. You have the adrenaline and all the people and all the music. And the excitement is there, right? And for other people, you're nearing the end of your race. You're thinking, man, I just got a couple more years maybe of this. I'm nearing my finish line. I'm about to go meet my king. Right? And you have that. Yeah, it's been a tough life. It's been a hard ride. But I made it. I finished my race strong. Right? Some of you have to crawl across that finish line. (laughs) It's okay. But a lot of you are right there in the middle, in the dark place, aren't you? Where the warm and fuzzies have worn off. You know, we get to say Hebrew prayers or we get to wear that or we get to celebrate this. All that stuff has kind of worn off. And now it's like I am doing this because I'm just determined. And I know this is right. And it gets really hard sometimes when my boss calls me to work on Shabbat or, you know, I don't that that pepperoni pizza is just really calling my name (laughs) or whatever it is that you're really struggling with or, you know. I've got unfettered access to the internet, you know, or whatever. It's like I, the thing, the things that are wanting to pull me away from finishing this race, you're in the midst of that. My marital hardships, my financial hardships, those you're in the dark place of your faith. And if I could be like a small, tiny voice of Paul echoing today, even though I'm probably right there in the middle of it myself, keep going. Run the race, finish strong, right? Like Jim said last week, what's the worst that could happen? Change of address. And he's already got the forwarding address, right? But if you're nearing the end, are you encouraging other runners? Are you encouraging other runners? You know, there's people that are new to this faith. You might be a seasoned veteran. Are you being selfish and just sticking to yourself? Or are you saying, you know, I'm almost done with my race. I'm exhausted as well. I'm coming up behind this person. They seem like they're new at this. Hey, man, what you need? You got this. You can do it. Hang in there. What do you need? Right? If you are closer to the start... Are you preparing yourself mentally and spiritually for the difficult parts that definitely lie ahead of you? Or are you just feeling the electric buzz of something new and that's what's keeping you going? 
know, this has not been a very deep teaching series. I haven't uncracked the biggest mysteries of God's word to you or, or, or shown you the deepest Hebrew secrets of whatever, as if I even know them. I haven't, I haven't opened up the book of Jubilees and all this, you know, <laughs> and it's not all super new and exciting and mysterious. I'm sorry for that, but I'm not sorry because really some people that are extremely obsessed and fascinated with that particular topic or that all that new and exciting stuff are some of the people that need to hear this really basic stuff the most. Some people that are really into that. And I've just encountered this over the past decade of being in this faith are doing so to distract themselves from something that's going on that they need to lay down at the cross. All right, I'm just going to keep it real with you. Yeah, we'll get back on all that cool stuff. Like, don't get me wrong. I'll talk to you about the feast days and how this, and maybe the end times even, or whatever. We'll go into all that at some point. But right now, you know, we just kind of pumped the brakes a little bit, and we went through the pastoral letters, and we're going through the pastoral letters. Because really, I think our congregation needs the 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 nutrients that are found in the pastoral letters of Paul. So if you see someone newer in the faith, encourage them. If you're further along in the faith, encourage them. If you're new to the faith, look for people who are wiser and older in the faith, more mature in the faith and seek their counsel and their correction and their wisdom in the faith. With that, does anybody have any questions or comments? Let me close in prayer. Then we'll go to questions. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for the life of Paul and giving him strength and encouragement so that we could open his letters even today, 2000 years later. And they still speak to us as timeless words of encouragement and edification. May everything we read today and talk today and and study and discuss while we're breaking bread and eating, may it be be bringing you glory and honor. And I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. You guys have any questions or, or comments or feedback? None? Okay, wow, okay. It's are quiet today. Yeah, we'll go to uh, Jim, and I saw Xavier's hand. Whenever, whenever anyone is involved in ministry deeply, like, you know, it sort of consumes their life, if you will. Yeah. There is that dark place, is um, often the place where you get the least amount of encouragement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like you're encouraging everybody else, but. Yeah. I really see that in Paul. He's You're pouring out, pouring out. Always pouring out and always encouraging, but then he talks about, oh, this person, like, this, this person did me harm. I thought this person was this, but they weren't. Yeah. You can always see his, um, his being very real about yeah. what, that, what that life is like. Yeah. And so, um, you know, for Keith and I, we really feel like uh, Acts chapter 18, like that's where we're at. Mm. We're, we're training others to, to do this kind of work. Yeah. And we're strengthening those in the region we've been given so that they'll be encouraged and strengthened in any way we can, whether it's teaching or, or preaching or example or whatever. Uh, we kind of see that as you know what we're going into that season. Yeah. It can be incredibly lonely. Absolutely. It can be, and when we come back, it's just so wonderful to the encouragement and fellowship yeah absolutely yeah it's kind of a recharging time yeah, funny story i was running the chattanooga marathon and i had i carry i run a little with a little fanny fanny sack on and a fanny pack and in my fanny pack i had my phone and uh 
I was about 14, 15 miles in, and I, I was, was kind of entering that cave in my, my mind and feeling really alone. I mean, there was no one around me. And it's crazy to think that you're running a marathon with 2,000 people, but over the course of 26 miles, you get spread out. And you'll be on this stretch, stretch, stretch of the, the race wondering if you're on the right part of the race. You're that alone. I mean, you're, you're winding through these, these little sidewalks and through the, these woods and stuff, and you're running along, and you're thinking, wait, did I take a wrong turn? There is no one there, right? And eventually you might come up on someone or someone might come up on you, but you, feel, you really feel isolated physically and mentally. Well, I, I pulled my phone out of my fanny pack and I was going to FaceTime Stacy while running because I needed that encouragement. And I went to dial the number and I hit the passcode in wrong because there was a little bit of sweat on the screen and it registered my fingerprint wrong. And so I couldn't log into my phone to do that. So I was like, oh man, it, it, it disabled it for one minute. And I put my phone back in my fanny pack and I kept going. I was like, okay, in a minute, I'll check it. Well, in a minute, I check it. And the whole time for that minute, it thought my stomach was typing the numbers on the phone. And it locked it out for like six minutes or five minutes. And I was like, oh. So I put it back in my fanny pack and I kept running. And I tried to turn it the other way so it wouldn't do that. I pulled it out again and my phone was like disabled for three hours. And I'm like, why? And I, I thought, I couldn't even listen to music. I couldn't call Stacy or anybody and get encouragement. And then my phone eventually just shut itself off. And Stacy was sitting there watching the app. We have Life360 on our phones. And she was watching my location as I'm running and tracking it to figure out when I'd be crossing the finish line so she could go out and meet me. And she was looking at it and she, she just sees it. It goes black. And she's like, did he die? You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that she was worried about me, but I'm out there like, I just need encouragement, right? And um, I, I slowed down enough that a friend of mine from college, Josh Brooker, caught up with me. And then we ran it in together. The last five or six miles, we ran together and finished it strong that way. But my phone never did work again until after, you know, it, it had to restart and everything. But, yeah, just a funny story. You, you physically, and it, so many correlations in the faith. I think that's why Paul is drawing on that idea of a race. It's like so many, so many correlations of, of doing of something physically hard correlating to something spiritually hard for the, you know, over the span of many years of your life. But, Xavier, I think your name was up, right? Yeah, in uh, verse 6, he, Paul tells Timothy to stir up the Hmm. And it seems to be the gift of an evangelist. Yeah. Which is kind of thinking, I, I believe there are a lot of us here who one have uh, never really pressed in and those are the soft what gifts we're supposed to receive to build up the body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which we need. Yeah. But it seems like everything else is like neglected. Mm. So I, I know that I just know in this group we don't only have you know teachers, pastors, we have all the other stuff we can draw out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pray that the Holy Spirit fans the flame of their gifts. Yeah. Marvin? Yeah, I'm I'm learning trying to learn that biblical Hebrew. Yeah. Now, what's the point? Mm. Now, that point now, yeah. Even the modern I say, these words are hard to pronounce. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah, it's like any any discipline that you're trying to take on or learn and discipline yourself to do, whether it's exercising or eating better or memorizing scripture or learning a new language like Marvin. Sometimes you hit these doldrums of why am I doing this? And it's the people that press through that that make it to the end or that can harvest the fruits of their labor. Um, 
So yeah, a lot of correlations there. But yeah, absolutely. Just press on, press on. Anybody else have a question or comment before we wrap up today? I love Paul and I love boating, but I wouldn't go boating with Paul. You wouldn't go boating with Paul, yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. Karen? He may have been dictating it to somebody who was allowed to have that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah or it could have been because he's visited, right? He, he right. Visited, right? Okay, so they, they, may have, they may have brought him. Yeah. Perhaps. Well, we know that we know that Paul actually did not physically write a lot of his own letters, but he sometimes would end his letters. He would say, "In my own handwriting." Um, some people speculate that Paul was mostly or partially blind, and that he struggled with his eyesight. Yeah. So a lot of his letters were dictated to someone who was copying them down. So it may have been the case there when he's in prison in Rome, but we just don't know for sure. But yeah. Yeah, Suzanne? You know, the scripture does not say this, but there's a possibility also that Paul was being ministered to by angels. Mm. There's that possibility. Yeah. And they were writing the letters. I mean, if this was God's purpose on the earth, but it's so amazing to me, just like Moses, knowing it's his last days, what yeah. was he doing? Yeah, still pouring himself out. Still pouring himself yeah. out. And the same thing with Paul. I mean, yeah. how many of us, our last few days on earth, if we knew it was our last right. day, we would be going around teaching people? Yeah, yeah. How many of us? Yeah. I mean, it's just outstanding to me, but at the conference, it was so encouraging because yeah. they were using the examples a lot of Joseph and how he lived a life, even in prison, mm-hmm. even with all the forgetting by the butler, etc., of Courage, of hope, and of faith. Yeah, steadfast faith. I've heard a lot of speakers mention courage, hope, and faith. Yeah. And how we have to do that within ourselves to make that tenacity and hanging on. Absolutely, yeah. So, guys, if you're here today and you need that encouragement, be encouraged. Um, You might not see the fruits of your labor, the fruits of your prayers. It might not be answered in your lifetime. You know, that loved one that you're praying for or whatever, the ailment that you're suffering from. But, um, like Paul, we know the end of the story, right? Like they sang today, um, I'm fighting a battle you've already won, right?